0: Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon Producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, His life, his work, and his world. Today's show continues our tradition of taking Hemingway at his word by asking writers and readers we admire to share their choice for Hemingway's one true sentence, and then, as Hemingway says, go on from there. The first wave of this project is out in a beautiful book, One True Sentence Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, from our friends at Godine. Michael and I encourage you to buy copies for the readers you love. Well, we have been looking forward to this episode for quite a while. To ask our favorite question, we are delighted to welcome Oscar Hokia to One True Podcast. He holds an MA in English from the University of Oklahoma with a concentration in Native American literature. He also holds a BFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts with a minor in indigenous liberal studies. Oscar Hokia's debut novel is Calling for a Blanket Dance. Among the many awards he has received, Oscar is the winner of the 2023 Penn Hemingway Award for Calling for a Blanket Dance, which appears in paperback this July. It is so great to have him on. Welcome to One True Podcast, Oscar Hokia. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to be here. I'm very
1: grateful that you invited me, and I've been excited to do this.
0: Us too, Oscar. So let's start the way we always do. Oscar Hokia, what is your one true sentence? Okay, it is, um, most people were heartless
1: about turtles, because a turtle's heart will beat for hours after it has been cut up and butchered. But the old man thought, I have such a heart too.
0: Okay, that's great. That is from The Old Man in the Sea. And what is it about that sequence of sentences that stood out to you? Well, you know, like, um, I'm at The
1: Old Man in the Sea was just a fascinating read in the sense that it's, um, you know, it captures the struggle to kind of, um, you know, to meet your desires to, to do something significant. And when I first read the book, it was back in, I want to say 2007, maybe. So I didn't graduate from high school. I know a lot of people read this book, The Old Man in the Sea, in high school. Um, I didn't go to high school. The last grade I completed was the sixth grade. Um, so a lot of these um novels that people read in their younger years, in their teen years, I didn't encounter them until I was probably in my late 20s. And so The Old Man in the Sea was one of those books. So I was an undergrad. It wasn't really assigned to me. I was just, you know, personally exploring these great works of art. So I, you know, crossed um, The Old Man in the Sea and wanted to engage with it. Um, But, you know, at the time, you know, as I was developing as a writer, there was that sense of like I'm trying to obtain this goal that kind of, can feel impossible at times, you know, and it. sometimes you can feel exhausted and you, you know, but you keep fighting, you keep struggling. And so that particular sentence, uh, most people were heartless about turtles because a turtle's heart will beat for hours after it has been cut up and butchered is, you know, this sense of, you know, uh, being tenacious, just having the resiliency to continue to fight, you know, despite, you know, all these obstacles.
0: That's wonderful. But in this, in the sentences you chose, the old man identifies with the turtle Mm -hmm. and you, you're also sharing in that identification. But in calling for a blanket dance, one of the primary characters is named turtle. Yes. So is there, is, is there something about turtles that has always fascinated you or drawn you to them? Or is that just a coincidence? No, yeah,
1: I'm definitely fascinated by Turtles, um, and, and this specific character in the debut, um, Turtle Gimasato, who is the mother to the main character ever, Gimasado. her, I guess her spirit and her way of engaging with the world has that same kind of tenacity, you know, like the, you know, she can, the way she out, outmaneuvers people is by outweighting them sometimes, you know, like she's not mm. like the, like a big personality and she's not like contentious or anything not in an overt kind of way uh, but she has this subtle way of just wearing people down with just like the slightest thing and that that kind of spirit manifests within her and so that's the reason why i named her character turtle and so the same thing happens here in the old man in the sea where we have we have the main character admiring the turtles in the water and their ability to to survive and their their own tenacity and he's you know he's identifying with it, as well, and so yeah I think that that, that kind of um, spirit does resonate with me personally and I do like and I feel like that's you know really true to life. Um, I think there's a in, lot of us
0: who who endure like that in the old man in the sea that as as part of this scene that you're drawing from Oscar mm-hmm. it says he had no mysticism about turtles and is your character turtle mystical or just that kind of patience and steadfastness that you're describing
1: i think that i don't i don't i wouldn't see her as being mystical but i think that you know like i try to ground my writing in realism i think she is a personality type that doesn't get a lot of attention in literature because she's not flashy you know sometimes we we look for these intense situations to write about because it's they're entertaining. Um, so like the contentious personality, um, the personality who's who's willing to do anything that they, they can to um, obtain their desires, those kind of personalities stand out. They're easy to write about. But when you talk about a character who's very subtle in her behaviors, um, it's more difficult to write a character like that. And I think it's more for us in the native community, like my mom is like, I mean, she's based off of my own mother, um, but we have different, you know, I think every Native family that I know has um, family members like this, you know, who are very quiet, um, but very powerful in their own way. And uh, and that we honor that energy that they bring to us. And I think Turtle kind of brings that. But for me, it's a very grounded kind of uh, perspective on a personality type that doesn't really get a lot of attention in literature.
0: In The Old Man in the Sea, one of the traits of Santiago as a fisherman is that he has a very particular relationship with the animals that he kills, even the Marlin that he's been, that he struggles Mm -hmm. with for days, he has a kinship with this Marlin. Did you identify with that quality in the, in the novella? Yeah. I, you know, I think that, you know, the, especially with I'm going to relate
1: this to writing, you know, like that's the, that's where my mind goes. And especially with, my process of writing this first novel because it took 14 years and I felt like I was struggling with that Marlin you know and um and there were definitely moments when the sharks were pulling it (laughs) apart you know like it wasn't working out and so I had to I had at one point I had to just almost essentially start over because I had written a version of it and then I couldn't get any any takers and so I had to pull it apart I just decided well you know it's not working this way I'm just gonna Take what I think doesn't need to be in there. I'm going to put new stuff in. So then it becomes a whole new thing and it becomes more of what it is now. But yeah, just having that 14 year, that long journey, that struggle, you know, with the, the old man in the sea, you know, he's like fighting to, to get this Marlin, you know, and just exhausting himself to obtain it. And then once he does obtain it, then now he has these sharks that are coming in and starting to try to take what he had struggled so hard to capture. And, um, so definitely can, I can feel that in not only just the making of the whole book in itself, but actually developing myself as a writer for each craft point. So like, as I'm trying to understand characterization, um, I have this long struggle with trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to write these characters and, um, how do I make them real and authentic? And then also just like voice. I mean, that's probably one of the things people talk most about with this book. Or, you know, a significant amount was with voice is just that having that Kiowa-specific or that Cherokee-specific way of talking and interlacing, you know, indigenous language into the into the narrative, um, being able to get to a point where I understood voice was years and years of just toiling and trying and just being creative on how to, how to develop it. So there's just a lot of facets about that struggle with the Marlin. That relate a great deal to, you know, a writer's life.
0: So if we could just extend that about like this comparison to Santiago to a writer's efforts. So Santiago lands the marlin, but he doesn't get to enjoy the rewards of it. The sharks pick it apart before he can sell it, before he can eat it and, Mm and go on, go on living. So it's almost like there's a joy in the effort as opposed to in the, the dividend. So were you enjoying those 14 years uh, before the Penn Hemingway Award or was it torture all the way along? It was, it was torture. It was torture. <laughs> so
1: I had like, you know, I went through writer's blocks, like really severe. Hmm. Um, right after, so I went to Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Started 2006, graduated 2009 in that last year i had developed in the very distinctive voice that you know like i just mentioned before with the kiowa specific cherokee specific voices but for some reason i hadn't settled within myself that that was going to be my direction Mm. like even though now it's just completely obvious like yeah that's what i should have been doing all along but you know you just like you question yourself and so i went through a block in 2010 to 2012 so two years where I couldn't write like I couldn't even put the flash drive you know I use flash drives sure And so I couldn't even put it in the computer because it was like you know mentally just you know hard to do so so going through that and then coming back to okay I'm gonna, after I graduated from OU with the master's in English then I was like okay I'm gonna start to write creatively again I could do critical writing like writing an essay academic papers um like that kind of writing I could do it was just the writing creative um you know writing fiction but after i graduated i was like okay i'm gonna take it on again wrote for a year and um and then that's when i come up with the first version of this book which was very very different and then hit a block again like i said before where i couldn't find any takers on that particular book and I was like okay i don't know what i'm doing and just questioning myself so you know having all this doubt and um went through another block yeah it can be it's painful when you're inside of those blocks it's very frustrating because you want, to, you want to produce, and you know you have the ability to produce, but there's something psychologically happening where you're
0: not able to do so. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. So, Oscar, the whole premise of our show is One True Sentence, which is Hemingway sort of remembering as a young writer how he's coaching himself. Come on, you can do it. All you have to do is write one true sentence and then go on from there. Mm -hmm. So, what changed it for you, did you have a one true sentence that kind of galvanized your process or was it just a decision that you made? So how I
1: broke out of the writer's block, um, the second time was that I decided to put this book, I had put, I think what I, one of the mistakes that I made was I put all my heart into one book. And so hmm. I was like, well, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm not going to write on that book anymore. I'm going to write a different book. And so I like slowly got back into it then. Um, so I wrote a first draft of another novel and that's, that's my, now that's my second novel that I'm working on now with my editor. Then after I wrote that first draft, you know, you set it aside and that's what I, and then after I set it aside, I went back to these, um, this book that I have now calling for a blanket and that's when I tore it apart. So as I'm writing that, you know, like I'm trying to figure out like, what is this, what is this novel? Now, how how is this novel going to turn out? What is it going to be about? But whenever I got to, you know, later in the novel where we see Ap-E um, chapter and we see this kind of transformation that happens with every Gimisadol reach a certain level of fruition. And there's a sentence in that particular chapter that does, that did give me insight into understanding that this was a decolonization narrative. Like I was writing... Um, i was writing a novel about a character who is struggling with historical trauma and he's he's looking at cultural elements community uh, family as a means to find his way out of those, that kind of historical trauma so whenever um, we say decolonization for me what i think about is healing so i've been working with that risk youth for you know 20 years now and um and so just a ton of healing work like every you know a lot of you know, taking you to just different situations to try to get them to overcome some of the obstacles they've they've had. So I always think in terms of healing when I think of decolonization. So once I once I got to that point in the novel, and that particular sentence, there's a sentence in the, that says specifically about healing. Can
0: you share that sentence, Oscar?
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's whenever I kind of understood the book um, sure. to be what it is now, and I was able to write more in depth about so- other aspects within the novel okay so it, it's it's kind of based off of um I mean it's based off of the main the title of the novel um so you know calling for a blanket dance In op e chapter which is the second to last chapter there's a scene in there where I describe this blanket dance happening for the main character and so that's what the novel is um titled from that particular scene to kind of give us a sense of community coming uh, wrapping around this character and so this particular sentence happens right as right as they're doing the the, blink, the blanket dance forever, Gima Saddle. and Op-E, his, would be his great aunt, um, is watching this all play out, watching the ceremony play out. And then she says, sometimes a blanket dance can fill up your spirit, and this is one of those moments. I'll never forget it, a gift. And so in that moment, for me, anyway, it was this moment of re- of realization like I, you know like i w- was writing these particular chapters based wrapped around this one character but having witnessed this particular ceremony play out just made me understand in depth like what all these characters were doing i understood it as a transformation narrative like i knew this character was on a certain journey and he was trying to transform and he had all these obstacles um so that that was um clear for me pretty early on but to understand it more as a decolonization narrative that particular scene and that particular sentence was um, was important for me to understand what was going on
0: so a blanket dance is a ceremony in which members of of the community donate or contribute to somebody at at need, uh, at risk or who needs it is that a fair definition yeah,
1: it is it is yeah so um, so you just imagine like you're at a powwow the big the big drum is going and um, what they'll do is they'll do a song specifically and they'll, you know, like an announcer will come up and say, all right, we're calling for a blanket dance for, um, it can be a multiple, it can be different things. Sometimes it's like honoring the drum, meaning you're like taking up a collection for the drum. Um, or sometimes it's like a student that's graduating high school and need to, you know, the family needs help with her supplies for the dorm. And, you know, um, so you, you they do a blanket dance and the ritual is they play the song, And then everyone who's watching and all the dancers and even the spectators, you can come into the arena and you drop like a dollar, two five, five, whatever you can afford. And so the community helps each other out. So it's a mechanism to kind of help pick each other up in these kind of financial crisis times. And then the main, in the novel, the main character has fallen on hard times. And so he's, him and his kids are standing up there while they perform this blanket dance.
0: I see. And so your novel is sort of calling for a blanket dance for the entire community, the entire the, the tribes that you're that you're describing. This becomes a larger statement.
1: It does. I mean, it shows the, um, you know, the blanket dance ritual play out in terms of how this one character throughout the course of his life mm-hmm. is interdependent on mm-hmm. on his family and his community for survival. And so that's the main um, premise of of the book is that is that how, you know, like we are dependent on each other and and not in like a codependent type of way. And as readers read the book, you you get to understand, like, ultimately, the main character has to make the choice. You know, like we can do each of us can do what we can for somebody. But really, in order for them to really change their life, they have to be the ones who want it. They got to want it enough to change. But you know we you know we see we see people struggling around us all the time, and we do our little part that we can to to guide them in the right direction. And that's what's happening in the book, is that essentially, um, his family is stepping up to the edge of the blankets and saying, hey, Evregim Saddle, this is what I have to offer you.
0: Well, Oscar, I don't want to make this unfair, but I have a one true sentence from your novel that I wonder if you could respond to. I I realize I'm foisting this on you that haven't haven't told you about this. This was just a sentence that stood out, and I would be very fortunate if you could elaborate on it. So it goes, I know writers love when I read their work back to them. That's a real (laughs) favorite. Time, like masks, could make us reclaim the best of who we were and purge the worst of what we'd become. Ever... Faced the mask, faced his fears, and I hope the mask healed him the way it once healed all Cherokees. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was a really devastating end to that chapter. Can you elaborate on that about time and masks?
1: Yeah. So the so this narrator in that particular chapter, um, his name is Hay Shade, and he is a uh, traditional person in the Cherokee community, and so he has a lot of you know no, his. I mean, he's based off of my medicine, man, like a real life, my, my real life medicine man here in Tahlequah. And um, so he has all this cultural knowledge and this awareness of practices and ceremonies that we hit, that we do now, but also some of the stuff that we haven't been doing for a long time. Um, and so the there's a mask that we call a booger mask. It's a traditional Cherokee mask that we have in the community. And so he's he's comparing that particular ritual ceremony that he is well versed in like he knows about it intimately and its role was to purge fear out of people so the ceremony traditionally was the way it played out was that people had these masks on and they were kind of comical you know like they were like ridiculous kind of looking faces I think Mm -hmm. if we look at them now we would say oh that's kind of scary you know the way that they're depicted like sometimes long noses you know like crazy hair you know. Just different shaped eyes, you know, um coloration's all weird, so they can look kind of scary, but back then they were um, comical, so they were like clowns. they would come out and during this ceremony and they would pretend to like grab people and run off with them and um, but it was a way for people to laugh at you know things that you know really happened in the community and it dissipated some of the fear and the anxiety with it. and so hey shade is seeing. Um, Evergemasad will be fascinated by this one particular mask and how he, he's aware that he's trying to overcome fear. There's a certain deep fear within the main character and it's going to take time. You know, like it's gonna, he's aware that it's going to sure. be a long time. And so it's like that foreshadowing element. You know, like in, in, um, Hemingway's, um, The Old Man in the Sea, we have this change that happens for the main character where he struggles with this, you know, this massive feat in a short amount of time, relative short amount of time, and it changes the trajectory of his life. Um, but in this particular situation, the um, hey Shade is looking at the main character saying, this is going to take time in order for him to truly overcome what's happening and for him to truly see that this is happening to him so that he can alter his fate.
0: Yeah. That's excellent, Oscar. You know, one other element of your book that I was hoping to ask you about on this podcast, we address, you can't help but address Hemingway's alcoholism and the way that Hemingway depicts alcohol and addiction in his work. And this is something that you are really don't shy away from in calling for a blanket dance. How did you choose to write about it and what how does it function in the novel? What, what was your approach to writing about that?
1: Yeah, so we, um, we started off with, um, and really it's addiction is, 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 is the broader mm. element to it because it's alcohol initially with his grandfather. His grandfather is an alcoholic, the main character. And then later, the main character's wife is addicted to meth. And so then it becomes meth. You know, part of it has to do with the generational thing. And, you know, like in one generation, the addiction was alcohol and this other generation it's meth, and then, you know, like today's world, we're starting to see a lot of young people hooked to fentanyl. So these things are changing, but the addiction and the historical trauma are all coming from the same source. It's just every generation is kind of coping with it Mm -hmm. in a, in a different kind of way. But yeah, so I, I take these issues. Like, you know, a lot of people talk about my writing style to be pretty raw, like really direct way of depicting native communities. And um, so I don't shy away from anything like addiction. The thing is, is that one, we, I, you know, alcoholism has been within my family as well. So like uh, my grandmother and my grandfather were both alcoholics on my mom's side. So both of her parents were alcoholics. And, um, and so my mom and her, her siblings um, grew up in an environment where they had to deal with that kind of alcoholism. And it was so intense that they were, adamant that they would never drink alcohol and they and they stay true to that, so all my aunts and uncles are pretty solid they're really solid foundationally uh have no issues you know, full you know i you know an ideal type family mother father you know kids that kind of situation because they grew up in an environment where both of the parents were alcoholics and they just didn't want to carry that on. But so in the novel, it's only the main character's grandfather that's the alcoholic and, um, and Mm -hmm. we catch him at a point where he's transforming. So for me, it was important to not just like, Oh, this person's an alcoholic, but I wanted to write a, write him at a point in his life where he's like, okay, this isn't where I need to do something, you know, like I've hit critical mass and I got to alter the future of my grandchildren because they're following in my footsteps. So, so easily, you know, like it doesn't like I don't even have to like show him, like, hey, do this, hey, do that. They just do it. They just do exactly what I do. And um, and it scared that particular thing scares him. So he's he's in the process of transforming himself. Um, so it's kind of like carrying a baton, a baton where um, yep. he's like, well, I've gone this far, um, grandson. I'm going to hand you this baton. And you carry it further.
0: Oscar, you mentioned that your formal education Stopped at sixth grade before it you did. went on to before you went on to graduate studies. Did you spend that time doing a lot of independent reading, or did you I only did. really start becoming a serious reader when you went to went back to school? Yeah. So from a, a, a young
1: age, I want to say even in elementary school, I had I just really liked to be alone. So um, I didn't want to go to school. You know, like, you know, I just wanted and it wasn't like to do crazy things as I just wanted to be by myself and play. And um, and so I had given my my mother a hard time from a very young age about being home, being by myself. Like I could go days with just playing by myself, not no, no friends, anybody. Um, and so and I'm still like that now. And so a lot of people are like. I don't know how you were able to write a novel and stay with it first. I'm just, a, I'm just alone all the time, you know? And, you know, mm-hmm. like my fascination is with books and, and if, you know, and I'm just being honest that in, if you want to write books, you got to be alone. And so I'm just, that's my natural environment. And, um, and so what happened was that eventually, and there was a ride right around, I want to say 13, 14, that, um, I started to read, I started to read Stephen King and it was just being in that solitude, you know, trying to fill space inside mm-hmm. that solitude. Um, and I just became fascinated with storytelling. And, you know, so that went on to just reading broadly in the horror genre and also fantasy. So, you know, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Anne Rice, um, Dean Koontz. Those were probably my first loves. And then uh, fantasy books, There's a series called The Dragonlance Forgotten Realms. So I started re- that was what I was reading when I was a teenager. And, um, but I spent a significant amount of time alone. I don't even know how to fully explain it. Like I can go, I could go, you know, a month without ever interacting with anyone, my own age,
0: I mentioned that you studied, uh, native American studies, indigenous studies intensely, and in your book, you have an epigraph of from N. Scott Momaday. So, do you find yourself reading Native American writers? And are there a couple that you respond to the most? Yeah. So, um, Momaday, I didn't I didn't encounter his writing until I was in
1: undergrad. I, I, I so whenever you know, like 2006, I was probably 29 years old um, when I started to um, go to college. Um, I got a GED when I was 17. I think I went to, like, GED classes for, like, three months and then got a GED when I was 17. And then after that, it was just, you know, I was just working. And then when I was in my, li- and, and writing, and I was writing, you know, all the time. And then so in my late 20s, that's when I started going to college. Uh, but before that, there was a writer called, by the name of Robert J. Connolly, who's Cherokee. And he wrote, you know, dozens and dozens of books. He wrote a ton of books and really well-known here in Tahlequah. And so, um, so his books were, you know, my, one of my, my first was my first encounter with Cherokee writing where you depicted Cherokees and there's this mix of English and Cherokee words. And, um, and I, you know, mm-hmm. like, like I could see a reflection of myself and my community in his writing. And then when I encountered N. Scott Mama Day in my late twenties, then I could, I could start seeing some of the similarities between, you know, what he was writing about in my Kiowa community. So, yeah, so those were the, probably the two major um, elements at play with um, influencing my writing, especially with with Conley, with his use of um, Cherokee-specific community writing, and then also um, interlacing English, um, interlacing Cherokee with English.
0: Is there a book by Conley that you would recommend above all others?
1: Yeah, so the the Mountain Wind Song. So that's about the removal uh. of Cherokees from um, North Carolina, Kentucky area. And then our march across, you know, half of the United States to to land in Oklahoma. And he does it through the lens of a love story. And so it's his um his ability to um, be gentle and respectful to our ancestors as he was writing it was very important. You know, like you don't you don't want to write about, a, you know, a tragedy like like that kind of a Holocaust. We were rounded up into concentration camps and we were killed in pens like animals and we were dying by the thousands in these pens. And then after a month, whatever, two months of living like that, then they're like, okay, now we're going to march you across the United States, you know, and then, and they wouldn't stop when our, when our family died, they wouldn't stop for burial. You just carried them. Hmm. You carried your brothers, carried their little sisters, mothers carried their babies, you know, until they got to Tahlequah and then we buried there. So if you're going to write about something that tragic and caught that caused so much historical trauma to so many Cherokees, um, that you have to, you have to be really sensitive about what you're doing. And he, and he did that and and Cherokees cherish him and that book for that reason.
0: So Oscar, what I'm hearing when I'm asking you a question, like, are there native American writers that you respond to your, Uh, interest is more with specifically Cherokee writers than just the broader Native Americans. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So Kiowa and Cherokee, so like in Scott Momaday and then, um, right. Yeah. So Southern Plains type writers. I mean, there's some more obscure writers that write on the Southern Plains as well that I eventually became fascinated with, but yeah, I very much write from a tribally specific space. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in Kiowa and Cherokee communities and so I write, my characters and my books are all going to take place between Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which Cherokee, where Cherokee Nation reservations at, and Lawton, Oklahoma, which is Comanche, um, area, but a lot of Kiowas moved to Lawton for work. And that's what happened with my family. So my family are, um, like all my cousins are Kiowa Comanche mix. And so I, that's the environment I grew up in. And so I, you know, they say in undergrad, write what you know. And so that's what I did. And, um, and, you know, I just really like those spaces and just trying to be hyper local as possible. When I draw my characters, super hyper like family specific, community society specific, because we have these different societies in our tribal communities, uh, just getting as specific as I can possibly get as as my brand of writing.
0: Oscar Hokia, would you mind repeating your one true sentence for us? Most people were heartless about turtles because of
1: turtles heart. Will beat for hours after it has been cut up and butchered.
0: But the old man thought, I have such a heart too. Oscar Hokia, author of Calling for a Blanket Dance, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, that was great to listen to Oscar Hokia talk about his book, and Hemingway's One True Sentence. And Michael Von Cannon, would you come out and join us, please? I'm here. Great to see you, Michael. Michael, I wanted to ask you a question based on what Oscar was talking about. So his novel, Calling for a Blanket Dance, is structured in a really interesting way. It's from the perspective of various characters. It may even remind our listeners of... As I Lay Dying, mm. in it, which is a quintessentially modernist book, which are monologues from the various characters in that novel, in Faulkner's novel. So, it got me thinking about Hemingway as an experimental novelist. Is he more mm. of a traditional novelist? What do you think about Hemingway's efforts when it comes to narrative perspective? You
2: know, I think about Hemingway and narrative perspective I guess in the way that he might switch from first-person narration to, I don't know, what we might call more complex kinds of narrative style. And I want to back that up a, a little or back up a little bit from that. Um, you know, Sun Also Rises, uh, Farewell to Arms, those are first-person narratives. And I don't mean that those are uh, simple narratives in any way. But at the same time, he writes Sun Also Rises having come off of something like In Our Time, which... Yeah. Is um, is a, a a modernist collage? Yeah. It's complicated. We, we we're moving in and out of uh, different kinds of narrative point of view, different time frames. It's chaotic, right? Yeah. It's it's a collage in that sense, and then we're fixed in some ways into uh, Jake Barnes's uh, eyeballs, and then yeah. Frederick Henry's, and then we go from there much later into other kinds of works where he almost does what he's, what, what he had done in, uh, 1924 and 1925. And I, I'd love to get your reaction from this, but you know, what, what he will do in, um, really beautiful kind of large works, uh, epic in some way works like For Whom the Bell Tolls, right? Where he is, he's moving out of first person and back into, um, or further into maybe a more mature, kind of uh narrative point of view
0: so for whom the bell tolls which he actually started in first person mm. at, in the manuscript mm-hmm. and then he moves it to third person but then if you really read that novel you'll see that they're like embedded narratives like pilar's yeah. embedded narrative and el sordo there are things that robert jordan would not have witnessed andres going to deliver that thing and uh the the, the uh, Communicate, and then so we're we're going back and forth, and so I think Hemingway did. Maybe he wasn't as experimental. He never wrote uh, Absalom, Absalom, or mm. uh, The Sound and the Fury like like Faulkner, or even in As I Dying, but he does within the some of the works that you're talking about, and in our time is a wonderful example. Actually, what about the uh, the Snows of Kilimanjaro? where we have those italicized reveries the memories the flashbacks that kind of sort of within one grander narrative they kind mm-hmm. of go they kind of go in and out i don't know if that relates to this type of uh, breach in narrative perspective
2: i think it can i think those are really gorgeous moments that are Poetic, and they are almost st- stories, right? Um, they yes. are they yeah. they are dreams that can become a, a story, and that's the that's the kind of beautiful sadness of yeah. Snows of Kilimanjaro. Is they are not uh, they are not stories uh, yet. Maybe they will never be, except in kind of the this mournful narrative about that fact.
0: Yeah, and it's like a, associative flashes mm. of consciousness from yeah. one memory to to the next, and so. Oscar's book, where these are distinct monologues, but also related mm-hmm. into a, a grander narrative. So great to hear from Oscar on Hemingway's work. We yes. loved having him on. And thanks for putting this into context for us, Michael. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported. By the Hemingway Society, the English department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.